2: Hi, Seth. Hey, Molly. Are you up for an experiment?
3: I am. This sounds ominous.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's not the ominous kind. All right. I, uh, I want you to hold out your hand. Yeah. And I'm going to give you something to touch. And I want to see if you can guess what material it is.
3: My eyes are closed. Okay. I'll use my good hand.
2: See if you can describe the properties of that.
3: Ooh. Feels like cold chicken skin.
2: No, actually, <laughs> it feels like cold
3: rubber from a deflated balloon.
2: Okay. Open your eyes. Oh. Made in South Korea, it says. Wait a minute. It's a small chamois for cleaning your glasses. Really? Okay, I'm gonna give you another one. Gosh.
3: Okay. Oh, that's it. heavy. Oh, that's furry. I can tell.
2: Fur? Yes. It's not fur. It's not fur. Feels like fur. Open your eyes. It's well, It's a it's a dacron wig. It's hair. Yeah, but it's not real hair. Is no, it? it's artificial hair. Well, I could use some. All okay, right. we'll do one last thing here. See if you okay. can okay. figure out what this material is. I'm about to put into your hand. Eyes shut. Yep. <laughs> okay.
3: That's a matchbox. I can tell that.
2: What's the material, though? Um, I don't know. It feels sort of like
3: wood, actually. Wood. Yes, I'll say wood.
2: Okay, that oh, one Oh got is wood. right.
3: Hey, all right. You got See, that I'm not right. such a blockhead after all. <laughs>
2: I'm holding in my hand a little bit of electronic skin, and I'm joined by Darren Lipomi. He's a chemical engineer postdoc at Stanford University, where we are now. I'm Molly Bentley, and we're at the university's Skin Lab. Is that what it's called, Darren?
4: Uh, We call it the Laboratory for Organic Semiconductors and Conductors.
2: Somewhere along the line, I think it got the nickname the Skin Lab. We'll join Seth Shostak later in the show as we tour the materials of the future. This is Big Picture Science and Material Whirl. And we'll begin our whirl here. Now, Darren, human skin is not a material, but what I'm holding here is a synthetic material.
4: That's right. What it's made of is an elastic film of silicone rubber, of the, sort of the type that you would buy at the hardware store. And what makes it special are films of spaghetti-like carbon nanotubes that are very conductive.
2: Now, I can't really feel what the texture is like because we're required to wear gloves, but even through the gloves I can tell it feels like a pliable, bendable, bit of soft plastic.
4: And it's unbreakable.
2: So I could stretch this and try to tear at it, and it would resist all my attempts to destroy it?
4: Right. You can stretch it by about 50%. And if it were thinner, you could stretch it by about 150%.
2: This doesn't look like human skin at all, but it is being developed as a replacement for skin, isn't it?
4: That's one of the the applications that we foresee. So I'm actually in a laboratory that's run by Professor Zhenan Bao, who has a grand vision for this type of stretchable organic electronics, and this work is funded by the United States intelligence community. And there are applications in potentially soft robotics for artificial intelligence systems, skin to apply to prosthetic devices for injured soldiers and burn victims.
2: Now, there are a lot of wires sticking out of it, actually tiny little copper wires, like little hairs. What are those for?
4: So the wires are to connect the device to instruments in the laboratory. And really the important part are the semi-transparent lines that you can see that are crossing like a grid. And at each point of intersection in the grid is a capacitor. So when the lines cross, it's like a parallel plate capacitor. And a capacitor has the ability to store charge between the plates and when the plates move closer together the capacitance increases and what this device does is measure the change in capacitance and that can be converted to a pressure so we can apply pressure to it and measure the capacitance
2: this little bit of skin here and i should say i'm calling it electronic skin but its proper name is transparent elastic pressure sensor it also has a coating of carbon nanotubes on it. What are carbon nanotubes?
4: Carbon nanotubes are very tiny threads, about a billionth of a meter in diameter, that have exceptionally high tensile strength and exceptionally good electronic properties. And they come in two forms some of them are conductive and some of them are semiconductive. But if you have a a mat of them like pick-up sticks or a plate of spaghetti, more like a plate of spaghetti, then the whole thing is is conductive.
2: I think we could do a demonstration on just how conductive this material is, right? Over here? Yeah. Okay, let's go over here.
4: This is our, our mechanical testing station where we do pressure-sensitive measurements as well as stretching measurements and this is a an electrometer that measures the changes in capacitance that we get when we put pressure on the devices.
2: Okay, what are you about to do?
4: So what I'm going to do is press on one of the pixels and show you how the capacitance changes as a function of whether I'm pressing on it or not.
2: And what should happen?
4: What should happen is that you'll see on the graph the capacitance will increase because as I'm pressing on it, the two films of carbon nanotubes closest to where I press will come closer together, and their ability to store charge will increase because they're moving closer together. Can I try? Sure.
2: Okay, so I'm taking this little plastic green probe or something, but this just allows me to right. press the, the skin. Okay. So it could be a cocktail umbrella, anything, anything that with a point. Right. Okay, so i press down. Now you want me to press at the intersection of the nanotubes, right? That's right. Gosh, it takes a little bit of coordination, steady hand. Let's see if I have it. Oh, and we see a little bump in the graph. So that means it's holding a charge and able to conduct electricity as well. That's right. And if this were skin on a human or prosthetic, why would that be an important quality?
4: Essentially to restore the sense of touch so a, a human being can feel not just touch but also pressure. So the storing charge is not so much important as our ability to measure how much charge it can store. So if we press very hard and move the carbon nanotubes as close together as possible, we see a huge increase in capacitance, and that would be registered as a large application of pressure, which could sense pain. For example, a pin prick is an exceptionally large amount of pressure because it's force applied over a very small area, namely the point of a pin, and that's registered as pain.
2: So it sounds like the pressure sensors in there that are provided by the carbon nanotubes are acting, in this case, like human nerve cells.
4: That's right. That's a good way to think about it.
2: Now to follow up on the question about artificial intelligence, uh, now this material could also be used if you were building a robot and you wanted to make it seem as lifelike as possible. And how would this be used then?
4: So, if you remember Star Trek The Next Generation, there was a character, Data, and his skin looked like human skin with a green glow. But if you were to dye this material, it, it would have many of the right characteristics to be used as android skin.
2: Well, thank you, Darren.
4: Thank you very much.
2: Darren Lipomi is a chemical engineer postdoc at Stanford University. Now I'm off to the studio to join Seth.
3: Hey, Molly, give me some skin. Good one, Seth. (laughs) Well, that's really interesting. Tell me again, what did it look like? I mean, was it a big sheet of stuff?
2: No, it was actually small, about the size of a a deck of cards, and it was translucent and pliable. So this was like a material that you could bend and twist and had all these little wires sticking out of it. So it's
3: really an engineered material that has the properties of something that, in the past, only biology could make.
2: Although it doesn't look like biology. It doesn't look like skin, although that's what they're creating it for.
3: Well, what strikes me is that it, it does have the properties of skin in the sense that it's stretchable and it and it doesn't break, and and most amazing of all, the fact that it can sense pressure at, you know, any of thousands of spots uh, across it. That's really interesting. I can see it as the fingers of robots in the not-too-distant future. (laughs) So this is an engineered material. You know, in the past, we had to sort of accept what we inherited in terms of materials. Anyhow, cotton, plastic, iron, they're all great, but the problem is that those materials, they just come with whatever properties they come with, and we take them or leave them. How about iron or steel? Yeah, great stuff, good tensile strength. They're really strong and all, but, you know, they rust. That's not so good. How about copper? Well, copper doesn't rust, but the problem is it's soft. So if you try and make something, you know, like a tool with make it out of copper, it just doesn't work very well. Okay, how about cotton? Well, actually, I like cotton for my shirts. But on the other hand, you have to admit, you know, (laughs) it has a lot of disadvantages. You have to iron it usually. (laughs)
2: You've cottoned on to the idea, at least for shirts. But what you're saying is that many of these materials, they have their disadvantages. So it opens up a whole window to a suite of materials that might replace or at least supplant what we've been using so far. Materials that are better, stronger, faster. Okay, maybe not faster. Well,
3: maybe they would be. I mean, if you had a coating of the right material, it just might make a plane more aerodynamic. Scientists are working on all sorts of new stuff, from nanoparticles to engineered materials. And that process in the past was haphazard, it was slow, but that's changing. In the same way that we might re-engineer biology, for example, to treat disease, we're going to be re-engineering our material world to improve our lives.
2: Linda Shadler is a material scientist and engineering professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute.
3: Linda, at uh, a lab at Stanford University, Darren LaPomi and others are using carbon nanotubes to make a kind of an artificial skin. Now, carbon nanotubes, as I recall, are sort of like plastics. When Dustin Hoffman said plastics in the movie The Graduate, that carbon nanotubes are the material of the future. Is that really true?
0: Well, carbon nanotubes are very interesting materials, and they certainly will be used in the future. But I think they're going to be used in applications that we weren't expecting. Initially, we thought we might build cables to the moon. And that's probably not going to happen, but instead they're being used in these very advanced niche applications where their small size and high surface area lends them properties that we can't get other ways. They are very strong and very stiff compared to their weight. And they also have very high electrical and sometimes thermal conductivity. So that combination of properties makes them unique. We used to think of them as sort of the ultimate carbon fiber like the kind of fiber that's put in your skis or your tennis racket, except they're much smaller and much stronger and much stiffer.
3: Okay. Well, now, you said that we're not going to use these things to build a a space elevator or something like that, but uh, give, give me an example of the kind of things that carbon nanotubes might be used for in the near future.
0: Well, certainly this artificial skin that you mentioned is very interesting, but I have friends that are looking at the use of nanotubes to stabilize certain enzymes, for example, that can then kill bacteria. So you could attach the enzymes to the nanotube, put it inside a polymer, and make a paint that kills bacteria in hospital surfaces. And the role of the nanotube is it stabilizes the activity of the enzyme, the ability of the enzyme to kill the bacteria, instead of the enzyme sort of evaporating.
3: I mean, this would be sort of a, you you wear an antiseptic Garment? Is that the idea?
0: <laughs> it could be. I think more we're thinking about doorknobs and uh, countertops.
3: Well, that's fantastic. Now, you also work with nanoparticles. I mean, these are—I don't know that these are nanoparticles or nanotubes, I suppose. Uh, tell, me, uh, tell me about nanoparticles. It certainly sounds good.
0: Well, nanoparticles are just really, really small particles. And so now, instead of the diameter being very small of a tube, you've got a diameter of a sphere being less than 100 nan- nanometers. So less than 100 nanometers would define it as a nanoparticle.
3: All right. And And what's
0: interesting about them is you can get combinations of properties that you couldn't get before. So for example, if I want to take a polymer and I want to change its index of refraction, its ability to bend light, one way to do that is to add a metal oxide like titania particle to the polymer. But if the particle is too big, then it scatters light and the polymer can't be seen through, so what's the point of bending the light? But if the nanoparticles are small enough, then the light is not scattered and the light passes through the polymer, so the polymer stays transparent, but you've altered its index of refraction. That's very important as we're creating new light-emitting diodes, for example. To improve their efficiency, we need the encapsulants, the materials on top to have different indices of refraction.
3: So you're saying that you're using these nanoparticles to make really tiny little lenses. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. That's one application of them, absolutely.
3: Now, I've heard lots of promises about nanotechnology. Uh, That's clearly one application, but that's, you know, that's a fairly specific technical application. If I were to ask you what would I see in my daily life, say 10 years from now, that involves nanoparticles? What would be the most widespread use of these things?
0: Wow, that is very hard to predict. But I do believe there'll be a lighting revolution and that this ability to tailor the properties of the polymers is going to help that revolution occur. I also think that things that will be affected by nanoparticles that you might not see will be materials that help us transmit electricity more efficiently, but whether you're going to see them in your uh, coffee mug, probably not. Will you see those that technology in your iPhone? Yes, but you won't know it's there. So in terms of things you'll actually see, they're too small to see. <laughs> you won't know they're there, but they are going to be affecting many applications that impact our lives.
3: Now, when we talk about these kinds of nanoparticles, are they just, you know, known molecules? Are they just you know small pieces of known stuff? Or can we engineer nanoparticles that are made of something that really doesn't exist in bulk form, something that I couldn't pick up a block of it?
0: We can make new kinds of nanoparticles. Um, but I just want to go back a minute, sorry about that, and answer the question about what will affect your daily life. Let me just mention that sunscreens right now and some of the pain relievers that have very long life already used nanoparticles in them. But most of those nanoparticles are made from things that we could take out of the earth and just make smaller and smaller and smaller. The kinds of nanoparticles that are emerging as new nanoparticles are ones that are layered. So you'll have one kind of material in the center and then another material surrounding it. And that does things like if the material fluoresces and then you encapsulate it in another material, sometimes it fluoresces even more, or based on what you put in that second layer, you can get the nanoparticles to organize themselves into strings or sheets.
3: Okay, so you have these fluorescing, you know, glowing, if you will, particles surrounded by a a, a coat of something, It sounds like an M&M. What What would the application of something like that be? <laughs>
0: It could be for light emitting again light emitting diodes where you have one wavelength of light coming out of the LED, but you want a white LED, and so it hits these materials that phosphoresce or fluoresce and change the wavelengths to be a a different set of wavelengths. Some of the other applications are just in being able to put them in as trackers. So you put them, you attach them to a protein, let's say, and you want to know where that protein goes. In your studies in your laboratory, you'll be able to see it better because the nanoparticle fluoresces and you can look at that fluorescence in a microscope.
2: Hold on, and we'll continue Seth's conversation with Linda Shadler in a moment. It's a material world on Big Picture Science.
5: From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We continue Seth's conversation with Linda Shadler about the materials of the future.
3: Now, we've been talking about... The really small here. But let's let's step back a bit. Material science strikes me as something that's gonna enjoy, you know, a lot of play in the twenty first century, because, you know, for the last ten thousand years, civilization, or what they call civilization, has been relying on, you know, ores you dig out of the ground and heat up and turn into iron or whatever. Uh, for for everything that we build, but finally we can manipulate stuff on an individual atom basis, at least in the laboratory. Are are we going to see a whole bunch of new materials that are, you know, macro in size?
0: Absolutely. History is marked by the Bronze Age, the Stone Age, and I think people would argue that the last century was the age of silicon, which is where all the computer chips came from. And so our ability to make synthetic materials really started almost 100 years ago, and has been our ability to do that has been improving and improving. So I'm not sure we're going to see a step jump in the development of new materials, but we're getting better and better at designing them to have very specific properties.
3: I have to say that uh, driving in today, I passed by some new condos under construction here, and they were using wood, and I <laughs> They're making this stuff out of trees, and that would have been true 5,000 years ago. And I thought surely we can engineer, you know, some sort of super duper stud material, some something better than the kind of aluminum and plastic studs we have now to replace building things out of wood. It seems so archaic.
0: You know, sometimes nature makes the very best materials, and I'm not sure we'll ever beat wood for the price, the renewability, and the, the sustainability and the uh, strength of its. It's just a great building material, so I'm not sure we will see houses built out of nanostructured materials. Are,
3: are there a lot of trees where you live? I, I, I hear <laughs> some, some sort of preference for trees. But, well, what about some of the other common uh, construction materials, such as uh, I know steel, aluminum, things like that? They, they seem pretty simple to me. Surely we could do better.
0: Ah, but steel and aluminum are not simple. There have been hundreds of years of technology developing the structure in those alloys. They're actually mixtures of metals and sometimes carbon and and other elements to get those properties. The aluminum that your airplane is made out of is a highly advanced material, often having some nanostructure to it already.
3: I see. Well, speaking of airplanes, uh, what about some sort of coating, maybe it's a nanomaterial coating, maybe not, that maybe you could put on the wings and the fuselage of aircraft to reduce the air friction, because after all, that's a really important thing when you're moving at 500 miles an hour. Uh, It seems that that would be an obvious application. Is that conceivable?
0: You might be right. I think coatings that make things stealth is more likely and there, but there are people working on manipulating materials and the shape of the the very surface of an aircraft wing to reduce friction and drag um but there probably are also coatings that will improve flight as well but i'm not familiar with those
3: okay well, <laughs> well what about spider silk i mean you know it's it's really strong it's the result of hundreds of millions of years of evolutionary development by spiders uh, and uh, But we still don't know how to make anything quite that good. You know, there's nothing that's quite as good as spider silk.
0: Actually, some of the new materials that have carbon nanotubes, highly aligned and organized, are beginning to make fibers that are close to the properties of spider silk. But they're going to be expensive. But so we, we can make, for very specific applications, things that mimic some of the wonders of nature. And we're just beginning to be able to do that, and we will certainly get better at it. But the balance will always be, I think, in the cost.
3: The product I want to see is something that mimics uh, the feet of geckos. So that, you know, they have the... the, Yeah,
0: no problem. We're going to get that one down.
3: Yeah, are we? Does that mean that I can, you know, walk up the wall soon?
0: (laughs) Only if you lose a lot of weight.
3: (laughs) I should do that anyway. (laughs) Well, finally, Linda, look... Our strongest materials, I don't know what they are, titanium, we use them in applications where you need a lot of strength with not too much weight. And, of course, that makes me think of aircraft. Can we, in principle, do better than these? Will future airplanes be, I don't know, maybe all carbon nanotubes, but maybe something that we haven't built yet that we can manufacture on a large scale and people will buy it at their home improvement centers, better than steel and easier to drill and saw?
0: So the new Dreamliner has, I've forgotten the number, 50% composites on it. It's not being made from the same aluminum materials that airplanes were made from before. And the aerospace industry is definitely looking at taking the composites that they currently use, which have carbon fibers or Kevlar fibers in them, and adding nanotubes also to those systems. So I do believe carbon nanotubes will be in our airplanes of the future, but they won't be the only component, they will be mixed with other strong and flexible materials.
3: Linda Shadler,
2: thanks so much for talking with me.
0: Thank you, Seth. It's been a lot of fun.
2: Linda Shadler is a material science and engineering professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. There are many dimensions to the future of material science.
3: Yep, but it's not just the raw materials themselves that will change. How we turn them into things, tools, structures, whatever, that's going to change too. For example, Today it takes a machine shop, you know, with a whole suite of specialized tools, lathes and milling machines and pneumatic hammers, whatever, to turn steel into, say, you know, a prototype carburetor for a new car. That's just the way it is.
2: I sense there's an exception to this rule.
3: Well, yes, imagine turning out not just prototype carburetors, but thousands of other products with just one tool, something that might fit on a desk. Creating new products might be as easy as hitting print on your computer. And this is the future for a lot of manufacturing. Nicholas Weidinger from the Institute for the Future says that that future is already here, 3-D printing. Well, Nick, you've got something set up here on the table. It's a, it looks
6: like a plywood box with a bunch of stuff in it, I mean, some sort of mechanism. Tell me what this is. This here is a MakerBot. It comes from MakerBot Industries out in New York. A bunch of guys got together and figured out how to build a kit for a 3-D printer. It's basically a printer where you can put in a file and make a three-dimensional object out of plastic.
3: Okay, so this is not a printer in the traditional sense where you put in a sheet of paper and you get something pretty flat out of it. This can make objects that have depth.
6: Exactly right. It's, um, it's actually very similar with two-dimensional printer in a lot of ways, only it has a third dimension to it.
3: What, what does it use <laughs> as ink?
6: It's a glorified hot glue gun. You have a, a feed of material that goes into it and then it's heated up and extruded out onto the platform.
3: Now, what you've got here is kind of a two-dimensional stage, as it's called, as you might find under a microscope for moving things back and forth or side to side. Yeah. Okay. So that's being driven by a bunch of motors that are presumably driven by a computer. Exactly. Okay. So then you've got uh, the sort of the printhead, which looks like some sort of hypodermic needles <laughs> assembly <laughs> coming up, that's aimed at this stage, this platform, this moving platform. And it has this, what you call a coil of... Uh, ABS, that's a kind yeah. of plastic going into it.
6: Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's the same thing that you make Legos out of.
3: Okay, well, well, I haven't made too many Legos recently, but okay. So it's a kind of plastic. And so that gets melted and then uh, spewed onto the uh, platform. Yeah,
6: it's heated up to This machine in particular works best at 235 degrees C. I, I don't mean to be insulting, but this this doesn't look like a
3: commercial product to me. I mean it's built out of plywood and yeah. and so forth. I mean it looks like it might work, but it, <laughs> it, is this kind of a do it yourself 3 d printer
6: yeah it's absolutely uh it's a hobbyist kit essentially and uh is it expensive um this kit right here is if you got it on sale at Christmas, it was a thousand bucks.
3: okay, but it's a manufacturing facility that fits on your
6: desk, yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I carried it here on the train this morning. What are we going to make? Are we going to make a 747 life-size, what? Um, eventually, if we had enough plastic. One of the coolest things that people have made is another MakerBot. Really? Self-replicating machine. Sounds dangerous. Exactly. It is, well, we'll see. We'll see how dangerous it is. But
3: What are we going to make? We're going to make something rather small, rather simple.
6: How, how big a thing can you make on this thing in one go? Um, in one go, it has a... 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter build. So that's maybe about the size of a piece of bread stacked on top of itself 10 times.
3: I see, okay, well, that, that's not that small actually. A, a lot of the parts that you know, I wish I could make for myself, which normally would require a machine shop, this thing might be able to do.
6: Yeah, I saw a doctor a while back who bought a 3D printer and started printing prosthetics and models of like that he would normally go to a company and get printed for thousands of dollars. He could do himself.
3: Fantastic. All right. Well, let's get to the printing. Now, you've got a laptop computer connected to this thing, which is presumably going to tell it what to do, how to print things. And on the display screen of your laptop is what looks like a CAD-CAM program, something, some sort of design program.
6: This here is Replicator G. It's the program that interfaces the computer to the printer. I got this file from a place called Thingiverse. Thingiverse is an online repository or a library of 3D objects. Basically, people go to Thingiverse and upload files, and then anybody can freely download them and print as many as they want.
3: So, in other words, you could go to this Thingiverse website, and you can find all these parts, all these objects. Yep. And if what you want to build happens to be among those objects, somebody's already worked out all the computer instructions for the 3D printer. Exactly. So, pretty soon, anything I would want might be on Thingiverse, as long as it's not more than four or five inches in size. Okay, tell me what you're
6: going to do here. So, I found this Maker Bolt. Um, It's basically a bolt and a nut together. I mean, it looks like a very short little bolt, about an inch long, but it has a diameter that looks like
3: maybe three-eighths of an inch or half an inch, and it's threaded. And then the head of the bolt is nicely knurled. Uh, If you don't know what knurled means, then you probably don't care what it means. (laughs) Uh, I mean, this is something that if I wanted to make this out of aluminum, this would require a lathe, which is a big, heavy, expensive machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not an easy part. I mean... Luckily, all that we have
6: to do is push print. (laughs) (laughs) this is sort of
3: a do-it-yourself 3d printer but i assume that there are much bigger 3d printers if you're in the commercial end of this sort of uh, an operation in principle there's really no limit to how big an object you could make if you were willing to build a big enough 3d printer right i mean you could build houses with a 3d printer
6: yeah, in theory, you could, you could print another earth if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: that sounds like a big project. It seems to me that there's going to be a whole new kind of manufacturing with 3D printers because if I set up, you know, I, I had a few million dollars to invest, and I set up a, a factory that just had 3D printers, not traditional machine tools, I could manufacture a very wide range of things. I wouldn't be limited to just making oscillating fans or, yeah. <laughs> you know, some, some small product line.
6: Yeah, there's a couple really cool things about that. First of all, you can make products on demand for people, so they're uniquely customized for the color and the shape. Also, you don't have to stock inventory, you don't have to create hundreds of thousands of parts and hope that somebody might buy them. Uh oh. That's it. This is part one. Oh, it's threaded on the inside, too. So it's got to cool for a couple minutes, because if it cools too fast, then it'll shrink. You know, the, You'll, the you lose the accuracy of the dimensions. Yeah.
3: Well, this is fantastic, Nick, because this part here, I mean, it's very complex in a way. And uh, if you had to make this for the U.S. government because it was an essential component in some fighter aircraft, it would probably cost the U.S. government, you know, $30 million to make it. We've made it here in about under 10 minutes using a few pennies worth of plastic and a machine that costs 1000 bucks. Yeah. Well, Nick Weidinger, thank you so much for uh, showing me this 3D printer. And all I can say is I'm going to look for the desk space at home (laughs) so I can
6: buy one of these things. Cool. Well, thanks for coming in. I love to share this. And it's such a fun technology to play with. I can't wait until everybody gets the privilege.
2: Nicholas Weidinger is a research assistant at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, California.
4: Hey, this 3D printer is cool. I made a porcupine-shaped soap dish. What's this machine over here?
3: Uh, Gary, that's a beta model. It says, do not touch, except when authorized by a physics professional. So I think you ought to just refrain That means t- touch. No, Gary, it's an untested prototype. I mean, they can have funny bugs. So I like I just... experiments. Uh, no. Just let me get don't... the Give Gary, me that. Gary, we'll get away from hey. that dial. Here. Go. Come on, get- me. What happened? Oh, I feel funny. You look funny. My hands are like rice paper. We're in two dimensions. And to my critics who say I lack depth, I can only Bring say- Bring back it.
2: my other dimensions.
3: Now Gary, don't go all non-linear or non-planar. It, it seems it didn't print an object. It reprinted us in 2D. We're as flat as an untuned piano. So just redial it, but
2: carefully- Quick,
3: change the dial. No, 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 be careful. Oh, jeez. Nice job. Just aces. Now we're in one, two, two, ten dimensions. My head is all logie. And my stomach's doing that roller coaster thing. I'm in a bad Jimi Hendrix video. Where's that dial? Hey, uh, can we linger just a little bit longer? I mean, I might prove super strain theory. You need multiple dimensions for that, and the Nobel Committee would just. Can't is-
6: get my hands
3: on it. There. Well, wow, that's better. I mean, I seem to be me, and, and you seem to be you. Whew back in the 3D world.
2: The discovery of an RNA that binds...
1: Of course, under pressure of more than 10 to the 15 bar...
3: What's going on?
2: Type T RNAs, P RNAs... I'm
3: surrounded by eggheads. Well, you misdialed again. I mean, we're no longer in 10D, we're in 3D, but we're being bombarded by PHDs.
4: Well, it's clear that inverse confidence Well, turn it off.
2: Turn it off. I'm trying. Cell respiration includes the glycolysis, citric acid cycle, and the electron transport to complete that catabolic pathway for the production. Coming up, a new look at the contributions of African-American women chemists. Also, the world's most commonly used man-made material. Any guesses?
3: We're living in a material world on Big Picture Science.
2: The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones
0: political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy.
1: My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that.
6: I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem.
2: We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever.
1: Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people?
2: (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate.
3: Material Science examines the relationship between the structure and properties of materials. It incorporates physics, of course, but also engineering and chemistry.
2: It's not a surprise to learn that women have made important contributions to the field of chemistry. The most recognized female chemist may be Marie Curie, born in Poland, who discovered thorium and radium. Or, if DNA is your thing, Rosalind Franklin, a British chemist, worked on the structure of the double helix. But the most famous African-American female chemist... That there's sometimes
3: a pause after that question prompted Jeanette Elizabeth Brown to do some historical
2: research. A retired chemist, Dr. Brown was the first African-American to earn a degree from the University of Minnesota Department of Chemistry graduate program. She went on to work in industry. Then, inspired by the achievements of another first, Marie Daly, the first African-American woman to receive a Ph.D. in chemistry just after the Second World War, she decided to write a book.
3: African-American Women Chemists – Profiles 25 scientists, what inspired them, and what their contributions have been in a field where, in the 20th century, there were few black men, let alone black women. Jeanette, you met Marie Daly, who worked on the chemistry of DNA, at a conference. She was the first African-American woman to earn a Ph.D. in chemistry in the U.S. Uh, When did that happen, actually? Her
1: Ph.D. was in 1947. 1947.
3: 1947. So that, that's, you know, relatively recently, I remember, 1947. What was Marie Daly's contribution to chemistry? If you had to describe what it was that she did,
1: what would you tell me? Well, in order to get in research, she had a Ph.D. from Columbia University. Then she wanted to work at Rockefeller Institute. They were working on the amino acids, which were the precursor to the discovery of the double helix,
3: well, when we think about the discovery of DNA by Crick and Watson, that was, I believe, in the early 1950s. So this mm-hmm. was this was research that preceded that. Was it uh, instrumental, do you think, in Watson and Crick's work?
1: Yes, I think, yeah. Watson cited that paper in his Nobel Prize speech. And so when I saw that, I said, oh, my God, you know, because I think recently he talked about women in science, and he said that women don't do very good science, but he didn't realize that. When he gave his Nobel Prize speech, there was an African American woman who had done that research.
3: Now I have to say that you know Marie Daly is not a name that I knew. This is somebody who was setting precedents, entering a field that you know women and and African American women in particular hadn't really entered before. She was truly a pioneer her story kind of inspired you to learn about other African-American women who are chemists. Of course, you are a chemist, so I presume that motivated your interest in learning about chemists. But if you had been a physicist, might you have looked at other African-American women physicists?
1: Yeah, probably, because uh, I, I was really interested in what the African-American community could do. You know, as an African-American scientist myself, I was like, where are the rest of us?
3: So, so where where are they? What what has happened? Are they simply you know unrecognized, or are there barriers to entry? What, what what was the result of your investigation here?
1: I say they're hiding in plain sight, and what I found out, especially the women who work lived in the South. They were educated by teachers who understood their science because they had masters or PhDs, but they were teaching in high school. There was the barrier; they couldn't teach in college, or they couldn't teach in a white school district. So that they were mentored by these teachers. Then, and when they got to college, uh, many of the women, other than Marie Daly, who grew up in New York and lived in New York, they went to the historically black colleges.
3: You said that many of these African American scientists are sort of hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. Did that not make it difficult for you to kind of track them down? Uh, did you have difficulty in finding out about these people?
1: Yeah. I w- my book goes from 1865 to 1965, and I wanted to find the earliest woman to get any degree in chemistry. And you know, the first woman that I could find is Josephine Silone Yates. She went to Rhode Island Normal School. She was the first African-American to graduate from that school, and she got a position in Lincoln Institute in 1881. That's the first woman I could find in my book. I'm still looking. A lot of it may be oral history rather than written.
3: Maybe you could tell me something about Alice Augusta Ball?
1: Yes, I was going to tell you about her. She received her MS degree in chemistry from the College of Hawaii. Someone went in and asked her to solve a problem of making the chalmuga oil more bioavailable. Now, that was used as a topical ointment to help leprosy. But it was not as effective as if it could be an injectable compound. And so she found a way of making an ester of that compound, which would more bioavailable, which means it could be injected. And this was treatment was used until World War II. Now, it was hidden uh, because she died young. And her the, the department chair decided he would take over the grant and call it his. And then all of a sudden, someone realized it. That wasn't really his method. It was Alice Ball's method. Well, that's an interesting example of a significant
3: contribution that uh, history kind of overlooked. Are there others uh, by people in these circumstances?
1: Well, there's one woman that everybody who flies ought to know about, and that's Dr. Betty Harris. Uh, she worked at Los Alamos National Laboratories, and her job there was to clean up the mess left over from the testing of the atomic bomb. But she also has a patent on nitrate explosive detector, which is used as you walk through a security and you take your shoes off. The people will swab your shoes with a cloth to see whether or not there's any nitrate explosives on that. Yes. And that's Dr. Betty Harris. She still lives in Los Alamos. She's in her 60s. She grew up in a farm in Shreveport, Louisiana, but she decided she wanted to be a chemist, and this is what she does. It's a really classy lady. In the
3: last chapter of your book, you look forward to future African-American chemists, more of them coming on the scene. So what would be the most important thing you would tell your students who might be interested in chemistry?
1: Just to uh, persevere. There is a woman who wrote a book called Swimming Against the Tide, And she says, young African-American girls now in school, they may be still interested in science, and they will, if they have encouragement from family, from teachers, or from other people, they will just swim against the tide, even though people will say, oh, you shouldn't be a chemist because you're black, you know, da-da. One of the reasons I wrote the book is to give them or show them a number of role models, Jeanette Brown, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much for the interview. Jeanette Elizabeth Brown is a retired
2: research chemist and author of African American Women Chemists. Listen and see if you can identify what material this gentleman is referring to.
5: It's on our sidewalks, it covers our streets, it comprises many of the public and private commercial buildings. Sewer conduits are made of it.
2: Sounds like this material is everywhere.
5: It would be difficult to find something that hadn't yet been made into concrete. I mean, people have even made frisbees from concrete. (laughs) Go long, Spike, run, boy, catch. (laughs) Oh, sorry, Spike.
3: Yikes. It's as though we have a world, an Earth, a globe, paved in this stuff.
5: I'm Robert Corland, the author of Concrete Planet.
3: Exactly. Concrete, the durable substance that rips the skin off your knees, makes up all those cheap apartment blocks, and gives parking lots that bland, lusterless gray hue. Who can embrace such an unlovable material? Well, we all must, because concrete is the most common man-made material of them all.
2: Actually, what is the most common
3: material, just material, on Earth? Well, I mean, there are a lot of things that you would call material, the rocks, the air, I mean, the, the Earth's crust. But if you want to know what's the most common element, well, silicon, oxygen, carbon, they make up a lot of the Earth's crust. Concrete, by the way, is made of all three of those things.
2: And concrete is a man-made material. And love it or hate it, it has a fascinating history, and it's here to stay. This is one substance you can't take for granite
5: there's so much of it, dozens of tons per person on the planet, that it'll eventually be a sedimentary layer. This will be known as the concrete era in the future. Yeah, it'll be something like the KT boundary marking the end of the age of dinosaurs. The age of humans will probably be a degraded form of concrete with a reddish-brown color of where the rebar used to be. It's
3: all rusted out. Well, Maybe you should tell me what concrete is because I'm not sure that everybody knows. It's concrete, cement, what's the difference?
5: Well, concrete is uh, it's a very simple material. It, it mostly consists of lime, also known as quick lime, which you get from baking limestone at very high temperatures. And the result is something called calcium oxide, and that's lime. And that's the basis of concrete, of mortar, and, and many plasters and so on. And then it's mixed with... Clay, also baked, and uh, they're often kilned together, and the result is concrete cement. It's a very simple material, and yet most people aren't aware of how important it is. And so people will say a cement patio, but it's really a concrete patio. Hmm. It's very common to hear cement mistaken for concrete. The problem with concrete is that back in the early 20th century, it was promoted by the cement industry—reinforced concrete, I should say—was promoted by the cement industry as being a permanent building material. Well, they told lots of fibs about concrete, and that was uh, one of the worst. Because it turns out that concrete probably has the shortest lifespan of any major building material, including wood. Really? Uh, yes. The world we built of concrete, those sewer conduits, highway overpasses, and so on, will eventually fall apart. And they fall apart in a very short period of time, between 50 to 100 years. But, what, what does it to do them? Just the weather? Well, the Romans probably recognized that you don't mix iron with concrete, and that's why they didn't use it because whenever you put in a ferrous material uh, like steel, which is mostly iron, eventually it's going to rust. And when it rusts, the rebar expands by about four or five times its original diameter, destroying both the concrete and, of course, the steels going away with the rust. So it's a hybrid material where both components are destroyed through the uh, rebar corrosion. And so our entire infrastructure is slowly falling apart. And if we continue this way, then our children and grandchildren will have to replace everything we build using reinforced concrete.
3: And maybe we ought to get out of this building. But you know, the funny thing is here, though, that you've mentioned the Romans. And anybody who's been to Rome sees that, okay, they, they obviously used a lot of brick. But they held that brick together with some sort of cement. And, and a lot of things, like the dome of the Pantheon, for example, it doesn't look like brick to me. It looks like concrete.
5: Yes, and it's unreinforced concrete, and that's why it's still with us today.
3: So they had better concrete than we have today, is what you're telling me.
5: They knew how to use it better. It's not necessarily that Roman concrete was better. It's that they knew how to use it better than we did into the last quarter of the 20th century. For instance, the Romans realized that you could make concrete denser by compacting it, and they would just compact the hell out of it eliminating all the air cavities in it and so on. Mm. And uh, that's something we didn't wake up to until the 1980s. This is all very sophisticated. When you consider
3: this 2,000 years ago, they, they knew how to reinforce concrete in ways that we've only relearned recently. If you consider the Middle Ages, when they were building these very complex and delicate cathedrals throughout Europe, they weren't using much concrete? Had they forgotten how to make concrete?
5: Yeah, the, the secret to concrete was lost along with a lot of other technologies when the Roman Empire fell, and it wasn't really rediscovered until about 1,500 years later.
3: Your book talks about some of the people in the concrete business, and, you know, if I stop and think, do I know anybody in the concrete business? I think that the answer to that is probably no, except it shouldn't be no, because there are people like Thomas Edison,
5: One of the fascinating things I discovered was that some of the most interesting characters in history were involved in concrete's development, rediscovery, uh, pioneering application, and so on. Uh, People such as uh, King Herod of Judea, Herod the Great, people like the Emperor Hadrian, Thomas Edison you mentioned. He once owned the largest concrete cement plant in the world. He was trying to corner the concrete market? (laughs) Yeah, but he did the wrong way. Uh, He tried to convince everyone that the future of concrete lay in building concrete single-family homes and concrete furniture. And it was a really dumb idea because concrete furniture is not only many times heavier than wood, but if you drop it, even if it's just like a foot, the thing's going to crack or shatter.
3: (laughs) If your next-door neighbor asks you to come over and help Load up the moving van, and it's all concrete furniture. I think I'd plan to be out of town. Speaking of use by unexpected people of concrete, what about the uh, the mob, the mafia? Did they actually ever <laughs> give anybody concrete pajamas and throw them into the river?
5: Yes, uh, sadly, they did misuse the material. Uh,
3: they would. Well, well, they might not consider it a misuse.
5: Well, what they would do is uh, they would lower a person into a concrete tub or a tub filled with concrete. Uh, up to their uh, knees, and often it was while they were still alive, so it would be less troublesome. And then after they expired, uh, they were dumped in the water. Fascinating stuff.
3: Yeah. (laughs) And what about the environmental consequences of using concrete as a building material? Is it benign? Is
5: it beneficial? Should we be using more of it and less of wood? That's a good question, because the manufacture of concrete cement is only behind power plants, and automobiles as a producer of greenhouse gases. The production of concrete cement is very deleterious to the atmosphere because of all the uh, CO2 that's released in its manufacturing. They're working right now. None of it's come to market yet, but there are several companies that claim they're close to coming to market with it. It's a new concrete cement that, instead of generating carbon dioxide in its manufacturing, it actually pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, so it's actually carbon negative. They're very secretive about the process they use, but they have been able to produce concrete in this manner. And uh, they say they're coming to market soon with this kind of concrete, which, if it's economical or even a little bit more expensive, would definitely be preferable to the way we're making concrete cement today.
3: Well, Bob, I guess you're really a material guy. I want to thank you so much for uh, talking with
5: me today. My pleasure.
2: Concrete Planet is Robert Corlin's foray into the strange and fascinating story of the world's most common man-made material. Thanks to our durable production staff... Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Marissa Fessenden.
3: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks to our listeners. Your
2: ears have been attuned to Material World. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.